This is Speak Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from August 27th to September 2nd. Mr. Rogers versus Darth Vader. The made-for-TV conventions of the Democratic and Republican parties were held to convince us to vote for them. Each promised to save us from the horrors of the other. To appeal to everyone, both parties brought in a wide range of people. Workers, farmers, women, immigrants, small business owners, people from every ethnic and racial group and many religions. Republicans for Biden, Democrats for Trump, each praising their candidate. Joe Biden was portrayed as a man with decades of government experience and more competent and presidential than Trump. Mostly, he was presented as a kind man who cares about all people, like Mr. Rogers, the character from the children's TV show. Donald Trump needed a character makeover because for many, he is like Darth Vader in Star Wars. The goal was to change his image into the man who cares for people. Supposedly, he is the man who cut through government red tape to get things done and is the savior of all small business people, ranchers, workers, and more. The Democrats portrayed Trump's open racism, his contempt for women, his attacks on immigrants and refugees, his denial of science when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic and global warming, and his disregard for democratic rights. Their message was one of doom if Trump is re-elected. The Republicans presented the horrors they claimed would follow if Biden were elected. It is their nightmare version of what they call socialism, attacking people's freedoms, cities overrun by anarchists and rioting, more regulations that will crush businesses, attacks on religion and open borders with immigrants taking jobs. So what's the choice we are being given? We have to think of the reality we are facing. We are facing the highest unemployment in most of our memories, and predictions are that many of these jobs will be eliminated. Tens of millions of people are facing the threat of eviction and hunger. It's a real crisis, despite Trump's arrogant claims that the economy is recovering, just like his claims that he has dealt with the virus and climate change is a hoax. His declarations are blatant lies aimed at covering up reality, but some people believe him. The racism of Trump's regime is clear. When Pence spoke at the convention, he denounced people who have been protesting police brutality. He talked about the federal agent who was killed while guarding the federal building in Oakland at the end of a demonstration. He didn't say the shooter was a follower of the racist Boogaloo ideology. This is an administration that shows support for racists, claims that things are getting better, denies the devastating reality of COVID-19 and global warming. What does this mean for the election this year? Should Trump be removed from office? Without a doubt. 
But to believe that Biden will deal with the real problems we face is to deny reality. The reality is that this system of capitalism is responsible for the problems we face. We face a system that is driven by the production of profit for the 1% rather than meeting the needs of the majority. The basis of this society is inequality, control, and ownership by the 1%. And the poverty and the racism that is used to divide us are a result, as are the wars that rage to control the world's resources and the systematic destruction of the environment. Both parties are organized to maintain and defend this system. Their politicians will not address its failings, no matter what they say or claim to do. So the real work of changing the conditions of our lives and the lives of generations to come rests on us, not on our vote. That's the real choice that lies ahead of us. Belarus, the power of workers. The people of Belarus are showing the power they have and the potential for even greater social change. Since August 9th, President Alexander Lukashenko has been under siege by the people of Belarus, who are demanding his departure from power. He has been president since the office was established in 1994. He claims to have received 80% of the vote this year. The opposition says that's ridiculous. After initial small protests, the government cracked down, arresting thousands and beating and torturing others. From August 13th on, a truly mass movement has developed. Some protests have included hundreds of thousands, and the police and military have temporarily stood down, even releasing many of those detained. But unlike some protest movements, made up of mostly students, in this case, workers have started taking action in their workplaces. Thousands of workers at major tractor and automobile factories have struck, some holding factory-wide meetings. They struck not only for pay, even though their salaries are barely enough to meet their needs. These were workplace strikes with political purposes. They struck to protest the state's repression and to show solidarity with the protests, demanding a new and fair election. As one striker at a state-owned construction company said, Quote, Why am I not going back to work? I simply cannot forget what has happened. I cannot. I saw 10 police officers beat up one person. I cannot forget that. Unquote. These strikes have forced management to threaten workers, doing everything possible to force workers back to work. Because they, the business owners and the political leadership, know that if workers stop working, then they cannot continue to rule. While this struggle seems to be nowhere near over, the working class of Belarus is showing us the potential power that we have. Workers in Belarus, the United States, and other countries all have power, if we choose to organize and use it. The working people of Belarus are giving us just a taste of the possibilities. Lucky to have a job. Quote, we should feel lucky that we have jobs, unquote. This is something that we might be hearing a lot at this point. We might even say it to ourselves. With the historically massive jumps in unemployment since the pandemic hit in March, it is understandable why this idea gets repeated often. But this is a lie. Whether we work in healthcare, public transportation, delivery, production, construction, or anything else, we work extremely hard for whatever we get. This is true despite many of us getting celebrated as 
essential workers. In fact, many of us are working harder with less staffing and supports than before, often without the safety protections that we and our loved ones deserve. Our communities might regard us as essential workers, but our bosses seem to treat us as disposable workers. It isn't a matter of luck that any of us still have jobs. It is our blood, sweat, and tears. But now, on top of that, for some of us, having those jobs is also a matter of putting our lives and those of our loved ones at risk as we are exposed to unsafe working conditions. At the same time, it isn't a matter of luck how the super rich have capitalized off of this crisis. It is a matter of their relentless greed. Since when the pandemic began in mid-March, the 643 top billionaires in the U.S. saw their incomes grow by $685 billion. That's more than $1 billion apiece. For those of us who have lost our jobs during this recent economic downturn, it is not a matter of us being, quote, unlucky. It is a consequence of a system that treats our lives as disposable to sacrifice our jobs to the invisible gods known as the economy, while pressuring those who still have jobs to work harder. We cannot afford to see our futures being governed by the luck of where we find ourselves in the economy at this point. It may seem difficult to imagine, but we have to find a way to stand together to get what we need and deserve our lives and livelihoods, whether we have a job or are unemployed. When we stand firm alongside each other, our odds to transform our situation greatly improve. The reality is, it is the 1% that should feel lucky. They are lucky that we have to put up with this insanity for as long as we have. The NBA Walkouts and Obama After the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, NBA players took action. The Milwaukee Bucks didn't come out for a tip-off, and a wave of solidarity spread throughout the sports world. Athletes in the WNBA, baseball, football, and hockey leagues all demonstrated their outrage at the racism of this country. Former President Barack Obama met with several NBA players, including LeBron James and the Players Association President Chris Paul. Initially, the Bucks and Los Angeles Lakers wanted to call the entire season off, but Obama encouraged the players to play, and the players did just that. These professional athletes said, in effect, quote, no business as usual while these racist police attacks continue, end quote. They are passionate about the issue, and they were following the lead of hundreds of thousands of people protesting since the cop murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Jalen Brown, a forward with the Celtics, spelled it out, quote, I think promises are made year after year. We've heard a lot of these terms and words before. We heard them in 2014, reform. We're still hearing them now. A lot of them are just reshaping the same ideas and nothing is actually taking place. Long-term goals are one thing, but I think there's stuff in our wheelhouse as athletes, with our resources, and the people that we're connected to, that short-term effect is possible as well. Everybody keeps saying, change is going to take this, change is going to take that. That's the incrementalism idea that keeps stringing you along to make you feel like something's going to happen, something's going to happen. 
People were dying in 2014, and it's 2020, and people are still dying the same way. They keep saying, reform, 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 and ain't nothing being reformed. I'm not as confident as I would like to be, unquote. The players were right to walk out. Professional athletes have a huge voice and a massive platform. Why not call for justice and encourage others to do so? And maybe that was what Obama was attempting to control, the spread of a social movement that has power to change the foundations of our society. Get your knee off our necks. March on Washington. On the 57th anniversary of the March on Washington, when Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, tens of thousands gathered at the Lincoln Memorial to protest the ongoing police shootings and racism of this country. Nearly 50,000 people came to Washington, D.C. from all over the country, despite restrictions due to COVID-19. A group walked from Wisconsin to D.C., getting arrested and shot at along the way. Others came from as far away as New Zealand. The march was called by Al Sharpton, a Baptist preacher and civil rights leader, in June at a George Floyd protest. The thousands who participated are part of the movement that has been ongoing since May, in some cities nearing 100 straight days of demonstrations. The shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha sparked new protests as well as strikes by major sports teams. These are further signs that this movement is spreading and deepening. Sharpton and other speakers called for legislation, declaring that demonstration without legislation will not lead to change. But what has happened this summer shows that this is not true. It has been the demonstrations that have put racism and police violence at the forefront. When cops are quickly charged with murder and police chiefs resign because of actions they got away with in the past, we know that the movement is having an impact. Anything we have won is because of the thousands of people who have been tear-gassed, chanted in the heat, and through masks, and refused to go home, and hope that everyone else would do something about it. Without the Black Lives Matter movement, countless flags and statues commemorating slavery and racism would still be standing. Yolanda King, Martin Luther King's 12-year-old granddaughter, is right. We must be the generation to decide we will end systemic racism, police brutality, and gun violence, save our planet from the climate crisis, and end poverty once and for all. We cannot settle for anything less than the world we deserve, and we must look to each other in the fight for our lives. Hurricane Laura, a climate change disaster. As if the stressors of COVID weren't enough, Residents in parts of Louisiana are dealing with significant damage to homes and workplaces, power losses, and lack of clean water after Category 4 Hurricane Laura ripped away power lines and destroyed water plants. All this while the state is experiencing some of its hottest days of the year. Add in the combination of heat, humidity, and rain, and the recovery is predicted to be slow, with spiking numbers of heat-related illness and heavy flooding. The hurricane has already left at least 16 dead in the U.S. and killed over 20 in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And Hurricane Laura is only one of more than a dozen Atlantic storms in what forecasters have called 
an extremely active 2020 season. In fact, this hurricane season is setting records with a possibility of more storms than the World Meteorological Organization even has names for. Plus, the season hasn't even reached its peak. This is likely just the start of the disasters to come. These storms are a result of warmer waters in the North Atlantic Ocean and Caribbean Sea, which have continued to warm with record summer temperatures. With this increased heat, there's more energy available for a hurricane to spin up, grow, and intensify. Additionally, since warmer air holds more moisture, the storm resulted in greater rainfall. With ocean and planet warming on an upward trend, we can only expect an increased number of intense hurricanes with greater flooding, another clear and disastrous effect of climate change. In addition to warmer waters, trapped greenhouse gases provide more energy for hurricanes to use, making them stronger. A warmer climate means storms that intensify more rapidly. Melting of Antarctic ice not only raises sea levels, it also makes hurricane storm surges higher. Climate change is leading not only to record droughts, flooding, fires, and heat waves, but also to stronger, deadlier hurricanes. We can't keep allowing these natural disasters to happen without recognizing the underlying cause. If we don't do something about climate change, more and worse disasters will come. Assumed Innocence and Guilt, a Matter of Race In 2014, in Cleveland, Ohio, 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot and killed by police for holding a toy gun within moments of cops arriving on the scene. Most recently, 29-year-old Jacob Blake was shot seven times in the back by cops in Kenosha, Wisconsin for allegedly having a knife. Contrast these instances to that of Kyle Rittenhouse, a 17-year-old who came to Kenosha armed with a semi-automatic rifle. He was seen shooting protesters, killing two, and injuring another in the protests against the police shooting of Jacob Blake. In a video, Rittenhouse walks right past law enforcement without question, brandishing a massive weapon despite the city imposing a curfew. In fact, one of the officers in Kenosha said in a loudspeaker to militia members, quote, we appreciate you guys, we really do, unquote. The cops even fraternized and shared bottled water with Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse was ultimately arrested and has since become a hero for many on the far right, with hundreds of thousands of dollars raised for his legal defense. Kyle Rittenhouse was not unique. He was one of numerous armed right-wing pro-cop activists who came to Kenosha, at least partly in response to social media-like conspiracy theory website Infowars. While many people don't want to see buildings burned down and windows smashed, the people of Kenosha were right to rebel against the brutal shooting of Jacob Blake. The far-right militias were called out to defend this society's distorted sense of law and order, one in which property is valued more than life, particularly black people's lives. How is it that law enforcement finds 12-year-old Tamir Rice with a toy gun more threatening than the 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse with a semi-automatic rifle? Why did Rittenhouse receive dramatically different treatment by cops than Tamir Rice, George Floyd, 
or Jacob Blake? Could it be that Rittenhouse was white and the others were black? Could it be that there has been a growing overlap between far-right white nationalist forces within the ranks of police departments across the country? Racism has been part of policing in the U.S. from the very beginning, but documentation of far-right groups infiltrating police departments has been growing. And this reality has been underway for decades. It's not unique to the Trump administration. In addition, the way events unfolded in Kenosha are not isolated. Far-right extremists have become emboldened with their violence, particularly with regard to the protests in response to the murder of George Floyd. There's been a bomb plot against Black Lives Matter protesters in Nevada, the targeted killing of a federal court security officer with the intent to incite a civil war by a member of the Boogaloo Boys in Oakland, California, and a Ku Klux Klan leader driving his car into a crowd of police brutality protesters in Virginia. What does it mean to talk about justice in this society? What does it mean to talk about justice when a black 12-year-old's toy gun is perceived as more threatening than the semi-automatic weapon of a white 17-year-old? This system offers us no real justice. Boycott sends shockwaves through professional sports as NBA players demand justice for Jacob Blake. The Milwaukee Bucks shocked the sports world on the afternoon of Wednesday, August 26th, after the players decided to boycott Game 5 of their first round NBA playoff series against the Orlando Magic. The team decided to boycott the game to put pressure on the authorities to bring justice for Jacob Blake, the unarmed black man who was shot seven times in the back by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and is now paralyzed from the waist down. In response to the boycott, the NBA immediately postponed the other two games scheduled later that day. Their protests spread rapidly, inspiring other players from the NBA and other athletes to act in solidarity. After hearing the news of the Bucks' boycott, Milwaukee's professional baseball team, the Brewers, held a team meeting and decided to boycott in support of the actions taken by the Bucks. Both teams felt the situation in Kenosha hit close to home and they needed to take a stand given Kenosha is less than an hour outside of Milwaukee and parts of their fan base come from the area. Within a matter of hours, three other Major League Baseball games were canceled after players decided they weren't going to play. Players from the women's NBA, WNBA, demanded all games be canceled in solidarity. Players from Major League Soccer initiated boycotts, and players from the National Hockey League followed suit a day later. Naomi Osaka, one of the top female tennis players in the world, also refused to play her match that week. NBA players were right to stand up against the racist police violence of this society. They're confronting how to take a stand against this society while also being conscious of the fact that their play can be a distraction from the larger societal issues we face. They decided that the NBA's corporate Black Lives Matter initiative was not going to make a difference. They decided they needed to take action on their own. There is a lot to learn and reflect on from what has happened. It shows how the act to stand up and take action can elicit a response across the population and that things can change very quickly. 
Within hours of individuals on the Bucks initiating this, they had sparked a process that shut down professional sports across the country and intensified the national spotlight on the attempted murder of Jacob Blake by police. We are living in a society that is deteriorating from COVID-19, the economic crisis, and the brutal racism that it relies upon. People see that, but may be afraid to take the first step, thinking others will. We can learn from the NBA players that said, enough is enough. But we can also see that we need to get organized. The better organized we become, the better chance we will have to influence society and make lasting change when these moments do arrive and people are ready to take a stand. Tip of the iceberg, voting rights attacked in Tennessee. The saying goes, if voting changed anything, they would make it illegal. Well, a new law in Tennessee could strip protesters of their right to vote. Last Thursday, Republican Governor Bill Lee signed Bill HB 8005, which states that protesters who camp on state property can face felony charges, leaving them unable to vote in Tennessee. The Republican Party's intention is twofold, increasing repression and intimidation of demonstrators in line with Trump's classifying protest groups like Antifa as terrorists, as well as restricting voting rights leading into the presidential election. In discussing the bill, Republicans were clear that it would be used to stop protests and break up demonstrators' autonomous zones. At the time of its signing, one such protest was camped outside Tennessee's state capitol. This attack comes with an onslaught of other measures that have restricted democratic rights. We've seen the rounding up of people by federal agents in Portland and threats to do the same in other cities. Deeming protesters as terrorists has essentially stripped them of all legal rights. Republicans have attacked democratic rights for years by increasing restrictions to voter registration. Recently, they have added to this attacks on the Postal Service to try to prevent people from voting by mail during a pandemic, as well as a plan proposed in May for a polling monitor force of 50,000 people who will keep an eye on, quote, voters deemed suspicious. Unquote. And it's not hard to guess who they will deem suspicious, people of color, students, and others likely not to vote for the Republicans. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. The saying above isn't far from the truth. In times like we'd had up till this year, times when the majority accept the brutality of racism, inequality, and a gambit of social ills without much resistance, only in those times are we given access to democratic rights. When we are complacent, we can be given room to vote or even speak out against our problems. But when we come together and start to resist as people have done recently, those rights go out the window. During the civil rights movement, every organization was infiltrated, monitored, and sabotaged by government forces. Protesters, like they are now, were beaten and shot at. This government is showing us once again, in this system, we are allowed democracy as long as we don't use it. In Tennessee, they've shown us that the only way we can have democratic control over society is if we organize it ourselves. CDC, ignoring science, appeasing the Trump administration. 
As numbers of new U.S. infections, hospitalizations, and deaths continue to remain high, as U.S. schools reopen and workers are called back into work, and as second waves of infection have begun to show up internationally, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, abruptly changed its COVID-19 guidelines and is recommending less testing in the U.S. The CDC has now issued guidelines saying that, quote, if you have been in close contact within six feet of a person with a COVID-19 infection for at least 15 minutes but do not have symptoms, you do not necessarily need a test, unquote. This came as a huge shock to medical and public health experts across the country because these new guidelines will mean fewer people with a known exposure to the virus will get tested. This is the exact opposite of what experts have been recommending for months, and it completely undermines any attempt to get outbreaks under control. Immediately in response to the CDC's announcement of the new guidelines, the American Medical Association issued a formal response claiming that the new recommendations are nothing but, quote, a recipe for community spread and more spikes in coronavirus. The recommendations to the CDC for the new change came straight from the Trump administration's White House Coronavirus Task Force. When challenged about the new guidelines, Brett Greerohr, the administration's coronavirus testing czar, confirmed that the recommendations did come from the task force and said that all members of the task force were part of the discussion and stand behind the new recommendations. But it turns out Dr. Anthony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, was undergoing surgery during the final discussions and did not know that a final decision was being made. After the CDC announced the new changes, Fauci told CNN that he did not agree with the new recommendation because it could send, quote, the wrong message and will give people the incorrect assumption that asymptomatic spread is not of great concern when, in fact, it is, unquote. The only thing that will decrease due to the CDC's new guidelines are not the number of infections or hospitalizations or deaths, it's the number of people getting tested and the number of reported positive cases. This is exactly what the Trump administration wants, for the number of reported cases to go down. There's nothing in the new recommendations that instruct those who have been exposed to the virus but have no symptoms to stay home and isolate for 14 days. The only recommendation is to monitor whether symptoms develop, but if people who have been exposed to the virus are asymptomatic and do not get tested, then they will be much more likely to go about their lives normally and infect many more people. This is not neglect or ignorance, nor scientific disagreement. This is absolutely inhumane. The result of the Trump administration's pressure to get the CDC to issue this change is undeniable it will lead to more deaths. There's a word for actions that knowingly lead to the death of innocent people. Murder. With any luck, the health departments of states and counties will ignore these completely vicious new guidelines. Breaking deadly records, the U.S. healthcare system. During the spring of 2020, an estimated 5.4 million people who lost their jobs also lost their health insurance. 
The only other time in recent history when so many people lost access to coverage was during the 2008-2009 recession, when 3.9 million people became uninsured. The U.S. has managed to break its own record by 39%. Some studies are projecting that a total of 10.1 million people will have lost access to health care by the end of 2020. The Trump administration has done nothing but ignore this issue. Instead, from the beginning, it has attempted to destroy the U.S.'s already weak public health care system. Many people will have no choice but to purchase their own health insurance, which is just a slap in the face at a time when over 30 million people are currently receiving unemployment and the country is experiencing the worst economic crisis since the 1930s. Others will have to depend on the already overextended and underfunded public health care system, and many will simply refrain from getting care, making this public crisis a lot worse. But while millions of people experience massive instability, the largest health insurers in the country have been making record profits since the beginning of the pandemic. Anthem, Humana, and others have doubled their profits since last year. These companies have saved millions of dollars by not having to pay for expensive elective surgeries that have been postponed. They have also benefited from reduced visits to ERs and primary care clinics. There's absolutely no reason other than the drive for profit that these companies shouldn't be forced to ensure access to health care for all. In any period, this number of uninsured people would be disastrous but at a time when the country is experiencing the impact of a pandemic that has already cost the lives of 185,000 people, the sheer criminality of this situation is glaring. Coronavirus Cures, brought to you by the MyPillow Guy. The latest coronavirus cure, the toxic compound oleandrin, found in the poisonous plant oleander. Quote, all parts of this plant are highly toxic and may be fatal, unquote, according to a North Carolina State University Extension website. So who's proclaiming this as a COVID treatment? Certainly not a scientist or health expert, but none other than the MyPillow guy, a staple of late night infomercials. Founder and CEO of MyPillow Inc., Mike Lindell, recently proposed this substance to President Trump as a treatment option for those with coronavirus, prompting the president to recommend approval by the FDA. However, not only does Lindell sit on the board of the company that develops the substance, Phoenix Biotechnology Incorporated, he's also a big Trump backer. That a well-known poisonous plant is even being considered a treatment option by the president of a country with the highest number of COVID cases by far is illuminating, to say the very least. Claims that oleandrin can cure coronavirus are unfounded, and experts say ingestion of the toxic shrub could be deadly. But when an entertainment icon known for his crazy antics and monumentally disastrous business ventures is capable of becoming the leader of the wealthiest country on earth, What's to stop a famous salesman from raking in cash from a phony COVID cure? 
In the age of alternative facts and alternative science, it's no wonder treatments with no scientific backing can make it to the national stage. Do you have the wealth to advertise? Do you have the right political connections? Then you may just be the next snake oil salesman all of America is talking about. Convalescent blood plasma. FDA approves another treatment for COVID. This week, the FDA granted Emergency Use Authorization Act, EUA, for another treatment for patients with COVID-19. This treatment relies on blood transfusions from patients who have recovered from the virus and thus would have antibodies present in their blood. Since a vaccine hasn't been developed yet, this is the only way for patients to get actual antibodies that fight the virus. Currently, the U.S. death toll for COVID-19 is over 184,000 people. With no vaccine available, as well as the easing of restrictions, this number will continue to rise in the coming months. This kind of emergency authorization is only used in cases of dire need, when no other viable treatment exists. It allows the commissioner of the FDA to temporarily approve of medical treatments or drugs that are either unapproved or are approved for a different use. This is the same authorization that allows the antiviral drug remdesivir to be prescribed as a treatment for patients in hospitals with severe cases of COVID-19. A recent study conducted by the Mayo Clinic and sponsored by the National Institute of Health showed that treating patients that had severe cases of COVID-19 with blood plasma improved mortality rates. However, this study did not include a placebo group against which to measure this data. This exclusion makes it impossible to determine efficacy rates and exactly how much this treatment helps those in need. As Stephen Neeson said, a clinical trialist at Cleveland Clinic, quote, the lack of high quality trials is making clinical decisions about how to treat patients with coronavirus infection is a national embarrassment. Here we have another non-randomized study, NIH funded and uninterpretable. Unquote. While this could be a promising treatment for patients suffering from the coronavirus, due to the missing data, we only know that blood plasma has a potential to save lives, but not that it will. It is irresponsible to tout this as a cure at this point. Postal workers resist attack. Postal workers in Tacoma, Washington, according to reports by local media, defied their top management last week by reconnecting the sorting machines which post office bosses had ordered shut down. Postal officials claimed that increasing efficiency required eliminating sorting machines in many locations around the country, but taking the machines out of service immediately delayed mail in some locations by as much as a week, impacting essential deliveries such as prescription medicine. If the removal of essential mail delivery equipment is not reversed, voting by mail will be undermined. Voting by mail, a necessity in the face of COVID, is something that Trump wants to prevent in order to improve his election prospects. U.S. Post Office CEO Louis DeJoy admitted that eliminating sorting machines had indeed slowed mail, but said that he would not order the reinstallation of the dismantled machines. However, in at least a few places, that seems to be happening anyway, as a USPS spokesman revealed on Monday, August 24th. Postal workers around the country have loudly protested 
Not only the decommissioning of essential equipment, including neighborhood mailboxes, but also cuts to overtime, which contribute to mail delays. Many postal workers have had to miss work because of COVID, so offering the remaining workers overtime is necessary to fill in the gaps and also to deal with the increased package shipments. Postal workers who stand up against the attacks on their jobs and the services we all need are doing the right and necessary thing. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. Thanks for listening.